the element. How finding your passion changes everything. By Sir Ken Robinson. Introduction. Sir Ken Robinson believes passionately that too many people never connect with their true talents and therefore they don't know what they're really capable of achieving. In that sense, they don't know who they truly are. Do you know who you truly are? Chapter one, the element. Robinson starts with a story about Gillian. Gillian was only eight years old and her future was at risk. Her schoolwork was a disaster. She turned in assignments late. Her handwriting was terrible and she tested poorly. Not only that, she was a disruption to the entire class. The school thought that Gillian had a learning disorder of some sort and it might be appropriate for her to be in a school for children with special needs. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder hadn't been invented at that time. Gillian's parents received a letter from the school with great concern and sprang to action. Gillian's mother put her daughter in her best dress and shoes, tied her hair in ponytail and took her to a psychologist for assessment. Gillian narrates that she remembers being invited into a large oak panelled room with leather bound books on the shelves. Standing in the room next to a large desk was an imposing man in a tweed jacket. He took Gillian to the far end of the room and sat her down on a huge leather sofa. Gillian's feet didn't quite touch the floor. The psychologist went back to his desk and for the next 20 minutes, he asked Gillian's mother questions. While he didn't direct any questions to Gillian, he was watching her intently and this made Gillian very uneasy. Eventually, they stopped talking and the man rose from his desk, walked to the sofa and sat next to the little girl. Gillian, you've been very patient and I thank you for that, he said. But I'm afraid I need to speak to your mother privately now. We're going to go out of the room for a few minutes. Don't worry, we won't be very long. Gillian nodded nervously and the two adults left the room. But as he was leaving the room, the psychologist leaned across his desk and turned on the radio. As soon as they were in the corridor outside the room, the doctor said to Gillian's mother, just stand there for a moment and watch what she does. There was a window into the room and they stood to one side of it where Gillian couldn't see them. Nearly immediately, Gillian was on her feet, moving around the room to the music. The two adults stood watching quietly for a few minutes, transfixed by the girl's grace. Anyone would have noticed that there was something natural, even primal, about Gillian's movements. Just as they would have surely caught the expression of utter pleasure on her face. 
At last, the psychologist turned to Gillian's mother and said, You know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. Take her to dance school. Gillian's mother did just that. I can't tell you how wonderful it was, Gillian said. I walked into this room and it was full of people like me. People who couldn't sit still. People who had to move in order to think. She started to go to dance school every week and practiced at home every day. Eventually, she went on to join the Royal Ballet Company itself, becoming a soloist and performing all over the world. When that part of her career ended, she formed her own musical theatre company and produced a series of highly successful shows in London and New York. Eventually, she met Andrew Lloyd Webber and created with him some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history, including Cats and The Phantom of the Opera. Little Gillian, the girl with the high-risk future, became known to the world as Gillian Lynn, one of the most accomplished choreographers of our time, someone who brought pleasure to millions and earned millions of dollars. One size does not fit all. Some of the most brilliant people do not do well at school. Many of them didn't really discover what they could do and who they really were until they'd left school and recovered from their education. Sir Paul McCartney is one of them. McCartney spent most of his time at Liverpool Institute fooling around. Rather than studying intently when he got home, he devoted the majority of his hours out of school listening to rock music and learning the guitar. This turned out to be a smart choice for him when he eventually formed the Beatles. In the mid-1980s, both schools closed down. Paul McCartney's school is now called Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts and its lead patron is Sir Paul McCartney himself who confessed that he went through his entire education without anyone noticing that he had any musical talent at all. He even applied to join the choir of Liverpool Cathedral and was turned down. They said he wasn't a good enough singer. Ironically, the very choir that rejected the young McCartney ultimately staged two of his classical pieces. The education system systems in the United States and the UK are in many and in many parts of the world are very similar. Three features stand out in particular. First, there is a preoccupation with certain sorts of academic ability. The second feature is the hierarchy of subjects with mathematics, science and language skills at the top. The third feature is the growing reliance on particular types of assessment. Children everywhere are now under intense pressure to perform at higher and higher levels on a narrow range of standardised tests. We have to recognise that most systems of mass education came into being relatively recently, in the 18th and 19th centuries. These systems were designed to meet, meet the economic interests of those times. 
times dominated by the Industrial Revolution. What is the element? The element is the meeting point between natural aptitude and personal passion. Individuals who are in their element do the thing they love and in doing it they feel like their most authentic selves. They find that time passes differently and that they are more alive, more centred and more vibrant than at any other times. When people are in their element, they connect with something fundamental to their sense of identity, purpose and well-being. The element has two main features and there are two conditions for being in it. The features are aptitude and passion. The conditions are attitude and opportunity. An aptitude is a natural facility for something and they are highly personal. You may, you may be very good at something but perhaps you don't feel it is your life calling. Being in your element needs something more. Passion. People who are in their element take a deep delight and pleasure in what they do. Attitude is our personal perspective on ourselves and our circumstances. An interesting indicator of our basic attitude is how we think of the role of luck in our lives. People who love what they do often describe themselves as lucky. People who think they're not successful in their lives often say they've been unlucky. But there's more to luck than pure chance. High achievers often share similar attitudes, such as perseverance, self-belief, optimism, ambition and frustration. How we perceive our circumstances and how we create and take opportunities depends largely on what we expect of ourselves. We will analyse the traits of people who have found their element. Now, as an aside, a note to retirement rebels. What are your aptitudes? Do you know them? What are you passionate about? What is your attitude to your life, to your work, to your relationships? Is your mind openly seeking opportunities? Chapter 2. Think Differently Mick Fleetwood is one of the most famous and accomplished rock drummers in the world. His band, Fleetwood Mac, sold tens of millions of copies of their recordings. And rock critics consider their albums, Fleetwood Mac and Rumours, to be works of genius. Yet, when he was in school, the numbers suggested that Mick Fleetwood lacked intelligence at least by the definitions many of us have come to take for granted. I was a total void in academic work and no one knew why, he said. 
I had a learning disability at school and still do. I had, I had no understanding of maths at all. I'd be hard pushed right now if someone were to say, what letter is before this one? I'd break out into a cold sweat. Mick Fleetwood attended a boarding school in England and found the experience deeply unsatisfying. Fortunately for Mick and the rest of us who listened to his music, he came from a home where his family saw beyond the limits of what they taught and tested in schools. His father was a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force, but when he left the service, he followed his true passion for writing. He took his family to live on a barge on the River Thames in Kent for three years so he could follow his dream. Mick's sister, Sally, went to London to become a sculptor and his sister, Susan, pursued a career in the theatre. In the Fleetwood household, everyone understood that brilliance came in different forms. Mick's epiphany moment came when he visited his sister in London as a boy and went to some little place in Chelsea with a piano player. There were people playing Miles Davis and smoking Gitan cigarettes. I watched them and the atmosphere sucked me in. I felt comfortable and unfettered. That was my dream. One day, I walked out of school and I sat under a large tree in the grounds. I'm not religious, but with tears pouring down my face, I prayed to God that I wouldn't be in this place anymore. I wanted to be in London and play in a jazz club. I was totally naive and ridiculous, but I made a commitment to myself that I was going to be a drummer. Mick's parents understood and at the age of 16, they put him on a train to London with a drum kit and allowed him to pursue his inspiration. His friend Peter Green proposed him as a replacement for the drummer in John Mayall's Blues Breakers, a band that at various times included Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce of Cream and Mick Taylor of the Rolling Stones. Later, Mick joined with Green and another Bluesbreakers alumnus, John McVie, to form Fleetwood Mac. The rest is history. How intelligent are you? The common sense view goes something like this. We're all born with a fixed amount of intelligence. It's a trait like blue or green eyes or long or short limbs. Intelligence shows itself in certain types of activity, especially in math and our use of words. This way of thinking about intelligence has a long history in Western culture and dates back at least to the days of the great Greek philosophers Aristotle and Plato. Two pillars of the Enlightenment were, one, the firm belief in the importance of logic and critical reasoning. The second pillar of the Enlightenment was a growing belief in the importance of evidence in support of scientific ideas. Evidence that one could observe through the human senses rather than superstition and hearsay. 
these two pillars of reason and evidence became the foundations of an intellectual revolution that transformed the outlook and achievements of the Western world. It also led to the spectacular advances in practical technology that gave rise to the Industrial Revolution and to the supreme domination of these forms of thought in scholarship, in politics, in commerce and education. A mass education grew to meet the growing demands of the Industrial Revolution. There was also a need for quick and easy forms of selection and assessment. And with the new science of psychology, the most significant idea in the middle of all this was IQ. Intelligence Quotient. Alfred Binet, one of the creators of the IQ test, intended the test to serve precisely the opposite function. He designed it exclusively on commission from the French government to identify children with special needs so they could get appropriate forms of education. Still, some educators and psychologists took and continue to take IQ numbers to absurd lengths. In 1916, Lewis Terman of Stanford University published a revision of Binet's IQ test, known as the Stanford-Binet test, now in its fifth version. It is the basis of the modern IQ test. Our fascination with IQ is a corollary to our fascination and great dependence on standardized testing in our schools. The tests, of course, do nothing to take the child's special skills and needs into consideration, yet they have a tremendous say in the child's scholastic fate. Interestingly, Carl Brigham, the inventor of the SAT, was also a eugenicist. He conceived the test for the military, and to his credit, disowned it five years later, rejecting eugenics at the same time. However, by this point, Harvard and the other Ivy League schools had begun to use it as a measure of applicant acceptability. For nearly seven decades, the most, most American colleges have used it, or the similar ACT, as an essential part of the screening process. John Katzman, founder of the Princeton Review, offers this stinging criticism. What makes the SAT bad, he says, is that it has nothing to do with what kids learn at school. As a result, it creates a shadow curriculum that furthers the goal of neither the educators nor the students. We think we know the answer to this question. How intelligent are you? The real answer, though, is that the question itself is the wrong one to ask. How are you intelligent? There are a variety of ways to express intelligence, and not one scale could measure this. There are multiple intelligences. Linguistic, musical, mathematical, spatial, kinesthetic, interpersonal, 
intrapersonal, etc. The three features of intelligence. Human intelligence seems to have at least three main features. The first is that it is extraordinarily diverse. It is clearly not limited to the ability to do verbal and mathematical reasoning. The second feature of intelligence is that it is tremendously dynamic. The human brain is intensely interactive. In fact, it is in the dynamic use of the brain, finding new connections between things, that the true breakthroughs occur. The third feature of intelligence is that it is entirely distinctive. Every person's intelligence is as unique as a fingerprint. Knowing that intelligence is diverse, dynamic and distinctive allows you to address the question in new ways. This is one of the components of the element. For when you explode your preconceived ideas about intelligence, you can begin to see your own intelligence in new ways. I've added some notes here to Retirement Rebels. How intelligent do you think you are? Is that opinion Sorry, is that your opinion or the opinion others have hoisted upon you? Have you taken any intelligence tests? And if so, do you believe in the results? Did you choose your career path or was it in fact chosen for you? Which of the multiple intelligence groups do you belong to? Linguistic, musical, mathematical, spatial, kinesthetic, interpersonal, intrapersonal. Chapter 3. Beyond Imagining Faith Ringold is an acclaimed artist, best known for her painted story quilts. In an interview with Ken Robinson, she told him that she felt that being at school with asthma made a positive difference in her development. Because, she says, I was not around for some of the indoctrinations, end quote. Her mother took her to see all the great acts of that time. Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, all these old singers and band leaders and all those people who were so wonderful. And so these people were the ones I thought of as being highly creative. She goes on to say, I was deeply inspired by their art and by their willingness to give of themselves to the public and to their audience. It made me understand about the communication aspect of being an artist. I was never forced to be like the other kids. I did not dress like them. I did not look like them. In my family, it was quite natural to do something that was considered odd. Children do art expressively and wonderfully. They do not see anything strange in art. They accept, they understand it, they love it. They have the natu same natural ability in music. Their little voices are like little, are like little bells that, are, that they are ringing. 
By the fifth grade, their little voices are no longer like bells. They are feeling ashamed of themselves, and some who can still sing will not. End quote. The promise of creativity. Most people have a narrow view of intelligence, tending to think it of it mainly in terms of academic ability. There are myths surrounding creativity. One myth is that only special people are creative. This is untrue. Everyone is born with tremendous capacities for creativity. The trick is to develop these capacities. Another myth is that creativity is about special activities. It is about creative domains like the arts, design or advertising. Untrue, because so can science, math, engineering, running a business, being an athlete or getting into and getting out of relationships. The fact is you can be creative at anything at all. The third myth is that people are either creative or they're not. Untrue, because it's entirely possible to become more creative in your work and in your life. It's all in your imagination. We tend to underestimate the range of our senses, our intelligence and our imagination. We tell people they have an overactive imagination. People pride themselves on being down-to-earth, realistic and no-nonsense and deride those who have their heads in the clouds. And yet, far more than any other power, imagination is what sets humans apart from every other species on Earth. Imagination led us from caves to cities, from bone clubs to golf clubs, from carrion to cuisine, and from superstition to science. So my initial definition of imagination is, quote, the power to bring to mind things that are not present to our senses, end quote. The power to bring to mind things that are not present to our senses, end quote. Through imagination, we can visit the past, contemplate the present, and anticipate the future. We can also do something of profound and unique significance. We can create. The power of creativity. Imagination is not the same as creativity. Creativity takes the process of imagination to another level. To be creative, you actually have to do something. It involves putting your imagination to work, to make something new, to come up with new solutions to problems, even to think of new problems or questions. You can think of creativity as applied imagination. Creative dynamics. Creativity is the strongest example of the dynamic nature of intelligence and it can call on all areas of our minds and being. The first is that it is a process. Usually it starts with an inkling, which requires further development. This is a journey that can have many different phases and unexpected turns. Creativity involves 
several different processes that wind through each other. The first is generating new ideas, imagining different possibilities, considering alternative options. The creative process also involves developing these ideas by judging which work best or feel right. Overall, creative work is a delicate balance between generating ideas and sifting and refining them. Opening your mind. The rules of logic or linear thought don't always guide creative thinking. On the contrary, creative insights often come in non-linear ways through seeing connections and similarities between things that we hadn't noticed before. Creative thinking depends greatly on what's sometimes called divergent or lateral thinking, and especially on thinking in metaphors or seeing analogies. The idea of George Harrison's song, Handle With Care, came from a label he saw on a packing crate. Creativity is not the opposite of logical thinking. Logic can be very important at different stages in the creative process, particularly when we're evaluating new ideas and how they fit into or challenge existing theories. It's now widely accepted that the two halves of the brain have different functions. The left hemisphere is involved in logical, sequential reasoning, with verbal language, mathematical thinking, and so on. The right hemisphere is involved in recognition of patterns of faces, with visual perception, orientation in space, and with movement. However, these compartments of the brain hardly work in isolation from each other. If you look at the images of the brain at work, you'll see it highly interactive. Creativity is always a dynamic process that may draw on many different ways of thinking at the same time. Dance is a physical, kinesthetic process. Music is a sound-based art form. But many dancers and musicians use mathematics as an integral part of their performances. In many instances, in dance, in song, we do not use external media at all. We ourselves are the medium of our creative work. Creative work reaches deep into our intuitive and unconscious minds and into our hearts and our feelings. At times, we need to let our our ideas ferment for a while and trust that the deep unconscious ruminations of our minds over which we have less control. In the 19th century, William James, one of the founding thinkers of modern psychology, wrote, and I quote, The greatest discovery of my generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes of mind. If you can change your mind, you can change your life. A few notes to retirement rebels here. Are you down to earth or do you have your head in the clouds? 
Or do you have your feet on the ground and your hands stretching to the skies? Do you believe you are a creative or not? And if not, why not? Do you bring to mind things that are not present to your senses? Are you left-brained or are you right-brained or are you whole-brained? Do you believe that if you change your attitude, you can change your life? Chapter four, in the zone. Eva Lawrence is the most famous female billiards player on the planet. Known as the striking Viking, she's been ranked number one in the world, won both the European and the US national championships, has appeared on the cover of the New York Times magazine and appeared in many major publications. It all started when she was 14. She went with a friend and her brother to a bowling alley, but got bored and followed her brother into the pool room. The minute she walked in, she reacted to it right away. She loved the dark room with lights over the tables and the clicking of the balls. Watching the players, she was amazed by their knowledge and skill of playing four moves ahead and then having to execute it. From that moment, she knew she wanted to dedicate her life to billiards. Fame and financial reward accompanied Eva on her rise to the top. But for her, the biggest change continued to be the game itself. Quote, you're almost unconscious to what's going on around you. It's literally the most peculiar feeling. It's like being in a tunnel, but you don't see anything else. You just see what you're doing. I just love the physics and geometry of it. Learning and understanding the angles and finding out how far you can push to change the angle to get the cue ball where you want it to go. Unquote. Eva has been playing billiards for nearly 30 years and playing billiards puts Eva in the zone, face to face with the element. The zone. To be in the zone is to be in the deep heart of the element. Doing what you love can involve all sorts of activities that are essential to the element, but are not the essence of it. Things like studying, organizing, arranging, etc. But even when you're doing the thing we love, there can be frustrations and disappointments. But when it does, it transforms our experience of the element. We live in the moment. We become lost in the experience and perform at our peak. Our breathing changes, our minds merge with our bodies and we feel ourselves drawn effortlessly into the heart of the element. Are we there yet? One of the strongest signs of being in the zone is a sense of freedom and authenticity. When we're doing something that we love and are naturally good at, we are much more likely to feel centered in our true sense of self, to be who we feel we truly are. 
Time also feels differently in the zone. Time tends to move more quickly and more fluidly. For Eva Lawrence, quote, nine hours can feel like 20 minutes, unquote. Being in the element and especially being in the zone doesn't take energy away from you. It gives it to you. The very thing that would wear others out is fueling you up. Activities we love fill us with energy even when we are physically exhausted. It's as though being in the zone plugs you into a kind of power pack. These peak performances are associated with physiological changes in the body. There may be a release of endorphins in the brain and of adrenaline through the body. Reaching out. When we connect with our own energy, we're more open to the energy of other people. The more alive we feel, the more we can contribute to the lives of others. There is another secret of being in the zone, that when you are inspired, your work can be inspirational for others. Being yourself. When people are in the zone, they align naturally with a way of thinking that works best for them. I believe this is the reason that time seems to take on a new dimension when you are in the zone. A few notes to Retirement Rebels. Left to your own devices, what are you drawn to? What are you attracted to? What kinds of activities do you tend to engage in voluntarily? What kind of activities fire your energy up? What sort of aptitude do you suggest? What absorbs you the most? Chapter 5. Finding your tribe. Finding the right tribe can be essential to finding your element. On the other hand, feeling deep down that you're with the wrong one is probably a good sign that you should be looking elsewhere. Domains and fields. When Ken Robinson talks of tribes, what he's talking about are two distinct ideas. The first is that the idea of domain and the second is of a field. Domain refers to the sorts of activities that people are engaged in, acting or business. And field refers to the other people who are engaged in it. For example, the domain of Meg Ryan, the actress, she discovered was acting, particularly in soaps. The field was the other actors she worked with who loved acting the way she did and who fed Meg Ryan's creativity. Quote, When I was working, I was just me and a couple of other actors in a black room with a camera team. I wasn't worried about the audience, because there wasn't one. The everyday of her world has no audience. The everyday of it is a black sound stage with cameras and one other person you're doing scenes with. And the activity was so absorbing, these people were so great that I just got carried away in the whole process. End quote. 
Some people are most in their element when they are working alone. This is often true of mathematicians, poets, painters and athletes. Even with these people, there is a tacit awareness of a field, of other writers, other painters, other mathematicians, other players, who enrich the domain and challenge their sense of possibility. How do they do that? Finding your tribe offers more than validation and interaction, important as both of these are. It provides inspiration and provocation to raise the bar on your own achievements. As Isaac Newton famously said, If I saw further, it was because I stood on the shoulder of giants. Unquote. This is not just a phenomenon of science. The singer Bob Dylan was born in Minnesota in 1942. In his autobiography, Chronicles, he tells of his alienation from his people there, from his family and from the popular culture of the day. His one lifeline was folk music and he had no other cares or interests. When he first heard Woody Guthrie, he said, it was like a million megaton bomb had dropped. It felt like, it felt like I had discovered some essence of self-command that I was feeling more like myself than ever before. I could sing all these songs, every single one of them, and they were all I wanted to sing. By discovering the journey of Woody Guthrie, Dylan began to imagine his own. Like Newton, he saw further because he stood on the shoulder of giants. The Alchemy of Synergy Creative teams are diverse. Creative teams are dynamic. Creative teams are distinct. One of the most famous examples of powerful teamwork is the administration of President Abraham Lincoln. In her book, Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin tells the story of Lincoln and members of his cabinet. Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War, Salmon P. Chase, Secretary of the Treasury, William H. Seward, Secretary of State, and Edwin Bates, Attorney General. These five men were unquestionably part of the same tribe, passionate in their desire to lead and move America forward. However, each of the four others had opposed Lincoln openly and bitterly prior to his presidency. Stanton once even called Lincoln a long-armed ape. Each had strongly held positions that sometimes differed greatly from Lincoln's. In addition, each of them believed they were more deserving of the presidency than the man the people elected. Still, Lincoln believed that each of these rivals had strengths that the administration needed. They argued ceaselessly, and often viciously. What they found in working with each other, though, was the ability to forge their differing opinions into a sturdy national policy, navigating the country through its most perilous period through the effort of their combined wisdom. Lost in the crowd. 
There is an important difference between being in a tribe, as I'm defining it, and being part of a crowd. Sports fans come to mind. Fan behavior is a different form of social affiliation. Membership of a fan group is not the same as being in a tribe. Tribe membership helps people become more themselves, leading them towards a greater sense of personal identity. On the other hand, in a crowd, including a group of fans, we can easily lose our own identity. Here's some notes for retirement rebels. Which tribe do you belong to? Are you a member of a tribe which allows you to be yourself or a fan group which demands you lose identity? Who are the giants on whose shoulders you stood on? Chapter 6. What will they think? Sometimes the challenge comes from within, from a lack of confidence or a fear of failure. Sometimes the people closest to you and their image and expectations of you are the real barrier. Sometimes the obstacles are not the people you know, but the culture that surrounds you. Robinson thinks that the barriers to finding the element are three concentric circles of constraint. Three concentric circles of constraint. This time it's personal. Fear is perhaps the most common obstacle to finding your element. You might ask how often it's played a part in your own life and held you back from doing the things you desperately wanted to try. Dr. Susan Jeffers offers a series of well-tested techniques to move from fear to fulfillment, of which the most powerful is explicit in the title of her book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Social, it's for your own good. Fear of disapproval and of being found wanting are often entangled in our relationships with the people closest to us. Your parents and siblings, and your partner and children, if you have them, are likely to have strong views on what you should and shouldn't do with your life. They may be right, of course. However, they can also be very wrong. Many people don't find their element because they don't have the encouragement or the confidence to step outside their established circle of relationships. Sometimes your loved ones genuinely think you are wasting your time and talents doing something of which they disapprove. This is what happened to Paolo Coelho, the author. Mind you, his parents went further than most to put him off. They had him committed repeatedly to a psychiatric institution and subjected to electroshock therapy because, quote, they loved him, unquote. The reason Coelho's parents, Pedro and Ligia, institutionalized him was that he had a passionate interest as a teenager in becoming a writer. Coelho believed this was a waste of time. 
They suggested he could do a bit of writing in his spare time if he felt the need to dabble in such things. But his real future lay in becoming a lawyer. Coelho said, and I quote, they wanted to help me. They had their dreams. I wanted to do this and that, but my parents had different plans for me and my life. Unquote. So there was a moment when they could not control me anymore, he said, and they were desperate. Coelho's parents put Paolo in an asylum three times. They knew their son was bright, believed he had a promising career ahead of him, and they did what they felt they had to do to put him on the right track. Yet, not even in such an extreme approach to intervention stopped Coelho from finding his element. In spite of the intense family opposition, he continued to pursue writing. Coelho's novel, The Alchemist, was a major international bestseller, selling more than 40 million copies around the world, and it has been translated into more than 60 languages. Few of us are encouraged to conform to our family's expectations as firmly as Paolo Coelho was, but many people face barriers from family and friends. Don't take a dance program. You can't make a living as a dancer. You're good at maths. You should become an accountant. I'm not paying for you to become a philosophy major and so on. Doing something for your own good is rarely for your own good if it causes you to be less than who you really are. <clears throat> Groupthink. <clears throat> Positively or negatively, our parents and families are powerful influences on us, but even stronger, especially when we're young, are our friends. We don't choose our families, but we do choose our friends. And we often choose them as a way of expanding our sense of identity beyond the family. As a result, the pressure to conform to the standards and expectations of friends and other social groups can be intense. Judith Rich Harris is a developmental psychologist and she argues that three main factors shape our development. Personal temperament, our parents and our peers. The influence of peers, she argues, is much stronger than that of parents. Children get their ideas of how to behave by identifying with a group and taking on its attitudes, behaviours, speech and style of dress and adornment. Most of them do this automatically and willingly. They want to be like their peers. And if they're not, their peers are quick to remind them of the penalties. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Since breaking the rules is a sure way to find ourselves out of the group, we may deny our deepest passions to stay connected with our peers. Being in your element may depend on stepping out of that circle. Sean Carter was born in the housing projects in Brooklyn, New York. Now known as JZ, he is one of the most successful musicians and business people of his generation. 
and an icon to millions of people around the world. To become all of that, he first had to confront the disapproval and the scepticism of the friends and peers he grew up with on the Brooklyn streets. His role model was a music entrepreneur, Russell Simmons, and like him, Jay-Z now heads a diverse business empire that's rooted in his success as a musician, but goes beyond that to include a clothing line and a record label. In extreme cases, peer groups can become trapped in what psychologists um, Irving Janus has called groupthink, a mode of thinking that people engage in when they are deeply involved in a cohesive in-group, when the members striving when the members' strivings for unanimity override their motivation to realistically appraise alternative courses of action. Culture, right and thong. Yes, right and thong. Culture is a system of permissions. It's about attitudes and behaviours that are acceptable and unacceptable unacceptable in different communities. The cultures in which we are raised do not only affect our values and outlook, they also shape our bodies and may even restructure our brains. As we learn to speak, our mouths and vocal organs adapt to make the sounds that our language uses. If you grow up speaking only one language, it can be physically difficult to create the sounds that other languages require and that other cultures take for granted. Those guttural French sounds or the lispy sounds of Spanish or the tonal sounds of some Asian languages. Swimming against the tide. <clears throat> All cultures have an unwritten survival manual for success, to quote cultural anthropologist Clotaire Rapaille. This survival manual comes from generations of adaptations to the particular climate in which the culture resides. But in addition to helping those within the culture thrive, it also sets out a series of constraints. Such constraints can inhibit us from reaching our element because our passions seem inconsistent with the culture. Finding your element sometimes requires breaking away from your native culture in order to achieve your goals. Zaha Hadid, the first woman to ever win the Pritzker Prize for Architecture, grew up in Baghdad, Iraq in the 1950s. Driven by her passions, Hadid moved first to London and then to America, where she studied with the greatest architects of her time, honed a revolutionary style, and after a rocky start, built some of the most distinctive structures in the world. Many of us live like Russian dolls nestled in multiple layers of cultural identity. Ken Robinson cites with amusement that nowadays being British means driving home in a German car, stopping off to buy some Belgian beer and a Turkish kebab or an Indian takeaway, to spend the evening on Swedish furniture watching American programs on a Japanese TV. And the most British thing of all, 
suspicion of anything foreign. Ultimately, the question is always going to be, what price are you willing to pay? The rewards of the element are considerable, but reaping those rewards may mean pushing back against some stiff opposition. So here's a few notes to retirement rebels. Does fear of disapproval from your family and friends stop you from pursuing your dream? Do you find yourself agreeing with your peers, even when in fact you don't agree with them, just so that you can remain part of that group? Are you willing and prepared to chart your own course in life, to follow your North Star? What price are you willing to pay for that dream? Chapter 7. Do you feel lucky? Being good at something and having a passion for it are essential to finding the element. Getting there depends fundamentally on our view of ourselves and of the events in our lives. The element is also a matter of attitude. When 12-year-old John Wilson walked into his chemistry class at Scarborough High School for boys on a rainy day in late October 1931, he had no way of knowing that his life was about to change completely. The container that the teacher gave John to heat on the Bunsen burner mistakenly held something more volatile than water. The container exploded, shattering glass bottles in the vicinity destroying a portion of the classroom and pelting the students with razor-edged shards. John Wilson came away from it, blinded in both eyes, and he spent the next two months in hospital. He did not regard this accident as catastrophic. He learnt Braille quickly and continued his education at the Worcester Cathedral for the blind. There... He excelled not only as a student, but as an accomplished rower, swimmer, actor and musician. From Worcester, Wilson studied law at Oxford and then set out to work for the National Institute for the Blind. His real calling was still waiting for him. In 1946... Wilson went on a fact-finding tour of British territories in Africa and the Middle East. What he found there was rampant blindness, and unlike his blindness, the diseases that affected so many people were preventable with proper medical attention. This moved him to action. His report led to the formation of the British Empire Society for the Blind, which is now called Sight Savers International. In 1950, he and his wife lived in a mud hut in the part of Ghana known as Country of the Blind because the disease that came from insect bites had blinded 10% of the population. He set his team to develop a preventative treatment for the disease, commonly known as river blindness. By the early 1960s, it was under control. Under Wilson's direction, the organization conducted 3 million cataract operations 
and treated 12 million others at risk of becoming blind. In all, tens of millions can see because of the commitment John Wilson made to preventing the preventable. Knighted by the Queen in 1975, he also received the Helen Keller International Award, the Albert Schweitzer International Prize, and the World Humanity Award. He lost his sight, but found a vision. He proved dramatically that it's not what happens to us that determines our lives. It's what we make of what happens. Attitude and aptitude. Good and bad things happen to all of us. It's not what happens to us that makes the difference in our lives. What makes the difference is our attitude towards what happens. Research and experience show us that lucky people often make their luck because of their attitudes. We all create and shape the realities of our own lives to an extraordinary extent. In his book, The Luck Factor, psychologist Richard Wiseman writes about his study of 400 exceptionally lucky and unlucky people. He found that those who considered themselves lucky tended to exhibit similar attitudes and behaviours. Their unlucky counterparts tended to exhibit opposite traits. Wiseman identified four principles that characterised lucky people. Lucky people tend to maximise chance opportunities. They are especially adept at creating, noticing and acting upon opportunities when they arise. Second, they tend to be very effective at listening to their intuition and to do work, such as meditation, that is designed to boost their intuitive abilities. The third principle is that lucky people tend to expect to be lucky, creating a series of self-fulfilling prophecies because they go into the world anticipating a positive outcome. Lastly, Lucky people have an attitude that allows them to turn bad luck to good. One way of opening ourselves up to new opportunities is to make conscious efforts to look differently at our situations. Another attitude that leads to what many of us would consider good luck is the ability to reframe, to look at a situation that fails to go according to plan and turn it into something beneficial. Sir Ken Robinson grew up in Liverpool. His father had been an amateur soccer player and boxer, and like everyone in his family, he was devoted to his local soccer team, Everton. Until he was four years old, everyone in his family assumed the Everton soccer player in his clan would be him. Then, in 1954, the year polio epidemic reached its peak, Robinson found himself in great pain from piercing headaches, and he became paralysed completely. Very slowly, he began to recover some use of his left leg, and thankfully the full use of his arms and the rest of his body. His right leg remained paralysed. He left the hospital at the age of five in a wheelchair, wearing no braces. That pretty much ended his soccer career. 
the first priority his parents had was to give him the best possible education so he could earn a good living. He eventually got through school and went on to college, and it was there that the interests that have shaped his life began to take form. A few notes to retirement rebels. Do you believe that your life is determined by what happens to us or by what we make of what happens to us? Do you create and shape your reality or do you allow the outside reality to shape you? Do you see and feel yourself as lucky or unlucky? Chapter 8. Somebody help me. After Robinson caught polio, he went to a special school for the physically handicapped. That was standard procedure back then in Britain. So he found himself from the age of five travelling by special bus every day from his working class area of Liverpool across the city to a small school in a relatively affluent area. One day, when he was 10, a visitor appeared in the classroom. He was a well-dressed man with a kind face and an educated voice. A day or so later, Robinson received a message to go to the headmaster's office. Sitting there next to the headmaster was the man who'd come to his classroom. He was introduced as Mr Charles Strafford, a member of Her Majesty's Inspector of Schools. They had a short conversation and Strafford asked Robinson questions, and then a few days later, they wound up in another room, and Robinson was submitted to a series of questions in what he later discovered was a general IQ test. Apparently, Strafford thought the school could challenge him more, and that he had the potential to pass a test known as the 11-plus exam. Passing the 11-plus exam was, for working-class kids, the best path to a professional career and an escape from possible lifetime of manual work. In the summer of 1961, he received news that he had passed his exams and from that moment his life moved into a completely new direction. He received a scholarship to the Liverpool Collegiate School, one of the best in the city. Charles Strafford became a close friend of his family and a frequent visitor. For Robinson, Charles Strafford was a window into another world. Aside from his parents, Strafford was the first true mentor and taught him the invaluable role that mentors play in helping us reach our element. Life-changing connection. Finding our element often requires the aid and guidance of others. Sometimes this comes from someone who sees something in us that we don't see in ourselves, as was the case for Gillian Lynn, or what Benjamin Graham was to Warren Buffett. The roles of mentors. Mentors connect us in a variety of ways. Some are with us for decades in an evolving role that must, might start as a teacher-student and ultimately evolve into a close friendship. Others enter our lives at a critical moment stay with us long enough to make a pivotal difference, and then move on. Regardless, mentors tend to serve some or all of our four roles for us.
First, recognition. Charles Stafford served that function in my family. Some people have aptitudes for music or for dance or for science, but more often than not, their aptitude turns out to be much more specific within a given industry. A person may have an aptitude for a particular type of music or for specific instruments. The guitar, not the violin. The acoustic guitar, not the electric guitar. A mentor who has already found the element in a particular discipline can do precisely that. Second, encouragement. Mentors lead us to believe that we can achieve something that seemed improbable or impossible to us before we met them. Mentors give hope when all hope is gone. Three, facilitating. Mentors can help us by offering us advice and techniques, paving the way for us and even allowing us to falter a bit while standing by to help us recover and learn from our mistakes. Four, stretching. Effective mentors push us past what we can see as our limits. Much as they do not allow us to succumb to self-doubt, they also prevent us from doing less with our lives than we can. A true mentor reminds us that our goal should never be to be average at our pursuits. More and more people are discovering that being a mentor for them is being in the element. More than heroes. Heroes are people like Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks or Neil Armstrong. They inspire us and lead us to marvel at the wonders of human potential. Yet mentors do something more than heroes in our search for the element. Heroes may become remote from us and inaccessible. They may live in another world. They may be dead. If we meet them, we may become too awestruck to engage properly with them. Heroes may not be good mentors to us. Mentors are different. Mentors open doors for us and get involved directly in our journeys. They show us the next steps and encourage us to take them. Some notes for retirement rebels. Have you had a mentor? Do you have a mentor? Have you ever been a mentor to someone? Has anyone ever inspired you? Have you ever inspired others? Chapter nine, is it too late? We all know people who feel locked in their lives. They sincerely wish they could do something more meaningful and fulfilling. But at the age of 39 or 52 or 64, they feel that the opportunity has passed. There is abundant evidence that opportunities to discover our element exist more frequently in our lives than many might believe. For example, Harriet Doer, the best-selling author, was 65 when she returned to college to get a degree in history. But the writing courses she took along the way raised her prose skills to a new level, and she wound up enrolled in Stanford's creative writing program. She eventually published her first novel, the National Book Award-winning Stones for Ibarra, 
in 1983 at the age of 73. Julia Child, the chef credited with revolutionizing American home cooking and originating the television cooking show, worked as a copywriter and in her mid-30s she discovered French cuisine and began professional training. It was not until she was nearly 50 that she published Mastering the Art of French Cooking that her storied career took, uh, took off. Thinking that we need to fulfill our grandest dreams, or at least be in the process of fulfilling them, by the time we're 30, is outmoded. If you're about to turn 100, it's unlikely that you're going to nail the leading role in Swan Lake, especially if you have no previous dance experience. Some dreams truly are impossible dreams. However, many are not. One of the most basic reasons for thinking that it's too late to be who you are truly capable of being is the belief that life is linear. As if we're on a busy one-way street and there is no alternative but to keep going on. Another example is Sir Ridley Scott. He had a decidedly non-linear approach towards entering the film world. When he first left art school, he decided to go into printing for the first five years of his life. Then he started moonlighting at the BBC. There, he was always trying to break the boundaries of what he was doing. Then they sent him on a year's travel scholarship. And when he went back to the BBC, he went straight in as a designer. After two years, he was put into the director's course. From there, he went into advertising and after directing commercials, he went into television. Human lives are organic and cyclical. Certainly, we're all getting older by the clock, but I know plenty of people who are the same age chronologically and generations apart emotionally and creatively. Agatha Christie wrote The Mousetrap, the longest running play when she was 62. Benjamin Franklin invented the bifocal lens when he was 78. Vladimir Horowitz gave his last sold-out piano recitals when he was 84. One of the greatest obstacles to being in our element is the belief that our minds somehow exist independently of our bodies, like tenants in an apartment. The evidence of research is not only that our physical health affects our intellectual and emotional vitality, but that our attitudes can affect our physical well-being. But equally important is the work you do to keep your mind young. Laughter has a huge impact on aging, so does intellectual curiosity. Meditation can also provide significant benefits to the physical body. <clears throat> Keeping things plastic. Learning to speak is one of the most miraculous achievements in a child's life. It happens for most of us within our first few years. No one teaches language to us, certainly not our parents. Babies learn by imitation and inference. We're all born with a deep instinctive capacity for language. 
Children born into a multilingual household are likely to learn each of those languages. They don't reach to a point of saturation and say, quote, please keep my grandmother out of here. I can't handle another dialect, unquote. <clears throat> if you are born into a monolingual household, learning a new language in middle school is much more difficult thing to do because you've already paved a large number of neural pathways with regards to language and how you shape your mouth when speaking. Trying to speak a foreign language for the first time in your 30s is even tougher. Your brains are in constant process of evolution and change and extremely reactive to their environment. During the early stages of development, our brains go, in, go through a process that cognitive scientists call neural pruning. It gets rid of unnecessary branches to allow for continued growth and increased overall strength. It shuts down pathways that we'll never use again in order to make room for the expansion of pathways that we will use regularly. In addition, research indicates that as long as we keep using our brains in an active way, we continue to build neural pathways as we get older. The brain continues to generate new cells and certain mental techniques such as meditation can even accelerate this. That said, our capacities do deteriorate with age, especially physical athleticism. There's not much point in denying this. So some of us try desperately to do so to the point of embarrassing ourselves in public. But in other ways, maturity can be a genuine advantage, for example, in the arts. Many writers, artists, poets, painters and composers have produced their greatest work as their insights and sensitivities deepened with age. We have the capacity to discover the element at practically any age. As the actress Sophia Loren once said, quote, there is a fountain of youth. It is your mind, your talents, the creativity you bring to your life and the lives of the people you love. When you learn to tap this source, you will have truly defeated age, unquote. Some notes for retirement rebels. Have you discovered your element? Do you think you're too old to do so now? Or do you think you're never too old to start? Do you laugh a lot? Do you meditate? Are you intellectually curious? 